Some things seem like they just can't be coincidences. They seem to call for explanation. If you toss a coin many times and it repeatedly lands heads, that might be an example. Philosophers have used this idea to argue for some far-reaching conclusions, such as that there aren't really any numbers, that other universes exist, and more famously, that an all-powerful God exists. But what does it mean for something to call for explanation? And are these arguments good ones? Hi, and welcome to Research Bites, the podcast of the Martin Buber Society of Fellows. In each episode, we feature innovative research in the humanities and the social sciences by one of our fellows. Let's turn to Dr. Oded Naman, who is interviewing Dr. Dan Baras, analytic philosophy researcher. Hello, Dan. Hi, Oded. So we're here uh, to discuss your book, uh, Calling for Explanation. It's a wide-ranging book, but one important topic that it discusses is arguments for the existence of God. And I want to start with that because being your friend, I know that you used to be a firm believer in God. That's correct. I grew up uh, very religious, um, Jewish, uh, modern Orthodox. Um, and I was actually religious until the age of 30. Until the age of 30. And so what happened? I mean, it's, it's a, it sounds like quite a big change to make at such a late stage in life. Right. So um, it was a long process. But um, I started out, uh, I had a religious education all throughout high school. After high school, I was so serious about the religion that I went to a yeshiva and was um, studying there to become a rabbi. And what's yeshiva like? Like what, what kind of, uh, it, it's another school? It's another high school? How, how is it different? Spent there uh, every day from six in the morning until 11 o'clock at night. Most of the time studying Talmud with some breaks for prayer and, and eating. And we would stay over, sleep there, stay over there, stay there. It's like a boarding school. A boarding school. I'd go home every third week. The rest of the time I stayed there. Um, and for six years. So from age, what, 18 till 24 or so? 16. But uh, ah, 16. I, I finished wow, high school right. a bit early. But uh, yeah. So 16 till 22, yeah. you were in yeshiva. So you went uh, to study philosophy because you wanted to think more seriously about your beliefs. But didn't you do that in yeshiva in the, all those years of studying? So I did. I mean, that's not what we spent most of our time doing. We we're studying the Talmud most of the time. But I also was a type of person that I always liked thinking. I liked thinking about what I believe and why I believe. And I came up with all these theories about my own beliefs. But I realized that part of what I believe and the reason I believe is because everyone around me believes the same. And I haven't really engaged seriously with people who believe otherwise. That's one thing. Another thing I realize is that um, I'm not doing it in a really professional way. I haven't been trained. Um, and there's this whole field out there that I heard of, I didn't know much about, um, called philosophy, where that's what people do. They think seriously about beliefs and what to believe and why to believe and um, methodology and arguments. And I wanted to become that. I wanted to become more professional about thinking and more rigorous in my thinking about my own beliefs. Right, and now that I think of it, your book discusses arguments uh, for the existence of God, so-called fine-tuning arguments, uh, arguments that know that there's something 
striking or amazing about the way the universe is is structured, uh, and that therefore uh, some some uh, God must exist. Um, so are these are these the kind of arguments that you were convinced by when you were uh, religious? So you're absolutely right to see the connection between my personal journey and personal history and uh, my work. Um, so religion, I should say, is more than just belief about God. It includes all these beliefs about texts and afterlife and all kinds of other things. Um, but when, So when thinking about God, I always thought and still think that the most attractive argument for the existence of God is an argument from design. And now there are very different versions of this argument. And in the book, I only discuss one such version. But I, this idea that there's something amazing, interesting um, about our universe, and that that's something that might lead someone to believe in God, I think that's something that's very, very attractive. I think it's actually what motivates a lot of people to believe that God exists. Right. So maybe you can tell us a little bit now about uh, about this arguments. What what are what do you think about having studied philosophy professionally, being a professional philosopher now, writing a book? What what do you think about these arguments that once uh, were so persuasive to you? So I'll tell you one story. Here's a story that I tell in the book, and there's more to it as in anything in philosophy. Once upon a time, design arguments seemed irrefutable. What people thought was, look, when you see a watch or a house and you have no idea whether they just popped into being or were intelligently designed, obviously, we should think they are intelligently designed. Then, the thought continues, we notice that our universe is similar to watches and houses in many ways. Maybe they have many parts and they're somehow fit together in a way that allows us to exist. So, similarly, we should conclude, it must be intelligently designed. Then came along David Hume and gave some really good objections. Hume, in the 18th century, wrote a book called Dialogues Concerning Natural Religion. In my opinion, it's one of the best books ever written in philosophy of religion. Hume said, look, we know that humans make houses and watches, so if we see one, it's likely also made by humans. But the universe as a whole is very different from houses and watches. One simple difference is that houses and watches are things that humans can make. We know humans exist, so if we see something that a human can make, it's fine to infer that it's made by humans. But universes are definitely not something that humans can make. A universe is much bigger. It includes the houses and the watches and the humans. So the analogy breaks down. Then come some recent philosophers like Roger White and Peter Van Inwagen and say no. Even if we never saw a watch before or anything like it, we should conclude that it is intelligently designed. And the same goes for our universe. We don't need to do any induction from previous observations. We don't have to learn from our previous experience with watches and houses and the like. We can somehow just see that these are the kinds of things that call for a certain kind of explanation and can't be coincidental. Not only religious philosophers think this. Some atheists, like most famously Derek Parfit and Tom Nagel, accept this line of reasoning as well. But they take it to a different direction. Like in Parfit's case, he thinks that it gives us reason to believe that other universes, universes that are very different from our universe, universes that we can't observe in any way, we should believe they exist because of this kind of reasoning. This is where I come in. I say, you never just see that a fact calls for explanation. It's always based on observations, or probability calculations, or previous experience, or what have you. So you're not going to escape Hume's objections. Meaning you can't just look at it and say, hey, that calls for explanation, we should infer that either God exists or these universes exist or some kind of explanation of a particular kind exists. 
but rather you have to think carefully about what you should believe and why you should believe. And once you do that, you'll notice that it's actually very different from watches and houses. So you said Derek Parfit thinks uh, somehow based on, on the same reasoning that there are many universes. How, is, how does, that, does that come into the picture? What's, what's, what's the argument there? I'll just say Parfit is actually taking an argument from another philosopher named John Leslie, who's less well known. So I use Derek Parfit because everyone who's done any philosophy has heard of him. And, but their, their idea is that, look, if there was just one universe and there's no intelligent design, there's no God, then it would be a coincidence that the one universe that exists is a universe that, can, um, that has the right, the precise conditions that allow there to be planets and eventually for life to emerge on one planet, um, namely Earth. But um, if we think that, no, there's a lot of universes, a lot of universes like many, many, many universes, um, and the different universes have different conditions, different, different physical con conditions. Um, in that case, different laws of nature, if you want, different um, constants that uh, determine the different powers that are at play and what have you. Then their idea is that once you assume that there are many, many universes, it's no longer a coincidence that one of those universes has the right conditions for life to emerge, is fine-tuned for life. Think of an example. If I toss a coin 10 times and it lands heads 10 times straight, um, that would be something that would be very striking. Now, you can think of two kinds of explanations. One explanation that would satisfy you is that somehow I'm able to manipulate the coin. So I tossed it 10 times and I was able to manipulate it so it lands 10 times head straight. Another possible explanation is that actually, suppose I told you that actually I was tossing the coin billions of times before you walked into the room. Um, and I just told you about the one time where I got 10 heads straight, but it's this one time out of billions of trials then you'd think, you know, that explains how I got 10 heads straight. If I'm trying a, million, a billion times, somewhere along the way, I'll get 10 straight heads. Same thing goes with universes. If there are many, many universes, as if like the multiverse is trying out different universes, then it's no surprise, no coincidence that one of those universes has the right conditions for life to emerge. That's their thought. You know, when you, we look at this universe and we see there's life and we see what are the chances that one universe exists and, and it has the, just the right conditions. But suppose we, suppose many universes existed, uh, sorry, suppose a different universe existed, only one, but a different one from Mars. And in that universe, say there are only purple things or whatever feature you choose whatever feature you like, you can always ask about that universe. How come of all the things that could have existed, we have a universe with only purple things, right? So it sounds like um, the question can always be raised, but if there's only one universe, it's inevitable that it'll have some particular, some particular features. Um, so I guess this is a question about whether, whether the fact that there's life uh, on, on our, in our own universe is really a fact that calls for explanation at all. So that's a very good point. According to all these people that I was talking about, Roger White, John Leslie, Derek Parfit, all these people, they're assuming that not all universes would call for explanation in the same way. There's something particular about our universe that would maybe be different in, in a purple universe. Maybe a purple universe would also call for an explanation. That's an open question. And this is not one that they answer. They give some like rough ideas of how we should distinguish between, more generally, not just about universes, the facts that call for explanation and those that don't. 
And that's actually one of the things that I try to do in my book. I examine 10 different views, possible views, um, about what the distinction might be between facts that call for explanation and facts that don't call for explanation, and I find them all to have problems. Back to your philosophy studies, you said that you wanted to think about your beliefs um, after many years of being very religious and studying uh, uh, religious texts. You went to the university, you studied philosophy. What were the topics that first caught your attention? How did they lead you uh, eventually to writing uh, the current book? So early on, I noticed a similarity between morality and religion. Both of these domains involve beliefs that have no empirical support. They aren't based on observations. I believe that it's wrong to harm innocent people. I firmly believe this, and yet it's not something that appears anywhere in scientific descriptions of the world. When we ask ourselves, on what basis do we hold this belief, other than that it just seems right? Embarrassingly, I don't know what exactly to say to this question, and not because I haven't thought about it. But then, if that's a valid answer, if it's okay to believe such things and shape our lives accordingly just because they seem right, then aren't religious beliefs the same? Can't they also be justified because to at least the religious believers they seem right? So this was a question that I wanted to explore. So what you're saying is that uh, if uh, that moral belief might be just as vulnerable to skeptical scrutiny, to doubt, as religious belief. And I guess that's that makes sense. People often think that without religion, we would lose morality. Uh, so do, do you think that really religion and morality stand and fall together because they rely on the same kinds of arguments? Um, let me first clarify one thing that I think has become clear to philosophers, but people outside philosophy, I think, still um, have this thought. And that is the thought that if God does not exist, everything is permitted because somehow we need God to tell us what's right and what's wrong or to decide what will be right and what, 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 what would be wrong. That is a view, it's called divine command theory and that there are very good reasons to, to reject that going back some of them to uh, the works of Plato in the Euthyphro. Um, that's not a view that I think is at all plausible, that kind of dependence between morality and religion. But I do think that there are a lot of similar arguments um, for and against certain beliefs about morality and certain beliefs about religion. Um, the kind of arguments that we mentioned before, that they're both non-empirical, and that raises questions about why we should believe what we believe, what, support, what kind of support those beliefs have. So given that parallel that I do accept, or that kind of dependence that I do accept between morality and religion, um, do they stand and fall together? So my short answer is not necessarily. Not for me, at least. Maybe for some people. So nobody has a doubt that if I enslave you, Oded, um, that will be very inconvenient to you. It will restrict, restrict your freedom. It might be painful, depending on what I do to you. Um, then you, if you ask, well, maybe even though it has all these effects on you, it's still a good thing to enslave you. That seems like a silly question to ask. It's something that maybe philosophers are going to think about, but it's not something that anybody really entertains seriously. I don't think you get the same effect with religion. It's much easier to doubt that a God exists. What this shows, I think, is that even if it's okay sometimes to accept something because it seems right, like the fact that I accept that it's wrong to enslave you because of all the wrongs, that, because of all the pain and 
limitations on your freedom that it causes. There are seemings and there are seemings, and the strength of our moral con convictions are much more significant than those of religious convictions. At least I can say so about myself at the stage where I still had those religious convictions. What you say is striking to me because people have enslaved people for many years, um, different times and places in history, um, thinking it's totally fine. And at the same time, throughout history, people you know, believed in some kind of God, one or the other, or many. <laughs> um, so it seems to me like the, it's not clear at all that morality is, is on firmer grounds than, than religion. That's a good point. And I think it shows how things get complicated. Um, and, and I don't have a simple answer. But what I was trying to say before is that if, I, if the grounds for justifying my belief was supposed to be that it seems to me X, you know, it seems to me that enslaving you is wrong, it seems to me that God exists, then I can say for myself, the seemings are not an equal grounding. One thing I'm more, I'm more strongly convinced in, or seems, seems so to um, a greater extent than something else. One thing I'm easily able to uh, give up, and the other I'm not easily able to give up. Now that's describing myself. Maybe people who lived back then felt the same about slavery, um, maybe people who are religious, but not like me, maybe they're even strong, more religious than, than I was back then. Um, and they feel like religion, religion, the religious beliefs seem as um, clearly true to them as the belief that making someone a slave um, is morally impermissible. Um, so to them, I'm not sure what to say. I was just showing that like, at least for me, the way I'm built, and I think many people are like me, there can be a difference between religion and morality. Now that was back then. Now I don't feel any like religious seemings. It doesn't just seem to me that God exists. I actually um, have the suspicion that back then I thought that it seemed to me that God exists, but actually I was confusing the seeming that God exists with my feeling of amazement by this universe. There are a lot of things that are amazing about our world. Um, that doesn't mean that a God exists. There's a difference between being amazed and thinking that a God exists. And those are sometimes conflated, I think. So now, uh, having trying to defend your religious beliefs and moving away from them, now you've come to, or during your studies at least, you've come to, uh, you know, tr try to to defend um, your mor moral beliefs that you feel more committed to, and and so how how the this move or this connection between morality and religion, how does that kind of lead uh, to to your book and to the topic of your book? So there are different ways of putting this worry about non-empirical beliefs. And one way, as I'll explain now, led me to my book. Um, so if you think about it, ethics, religion are a few domains of non-empirical beliefs, but some have worried also about mathematics. And what way, one way of worrying about mathematics comes from the work of a philosopher named Hartree Field. Wait, you're saying that mathematics has the same problems that religion and morality, the same problems we talked about that religion and morality have? Yeah, so think, think of an example. We know that one plus one equals two. At least we think we know that. How do you know that? So it's not like we take one apple, add another apple, and notice, hey, we have two apples. So from here, one plus one equals two. No, because if our belief that one plus one equals two was based on just these kinds of experiments. And if, say, we were just experimenting on apples, 
we would have no way of knowing that if I took, say, an airplane and added another airplane, I'd get two airplanes. Maybe with airplanes, it works differently and you get three airplanes. But we do think that we know that one plus one equals two for any object we take, and it can't be based on experiment for the reason I just told you. So the question arises, well, then how do we know that one plus one equals two? What should we make of that belief of ours? Right, so you're saying that since mathematics is also not based on experiment and, and observation, it faces similar challenges to the challenges that morality and religious religion right. face. Right, at least that's what many have argued. And there are different ways of putting this argument. Here's Hartree Field's way of putting it. He says, if you think of it, what does it mean for us to claim that we know a lot of math? It means that there are a lot of mathematical claims that we believe, and we also think they're true. Another way of describing the situation is that we believe there's a large correlation between the mathematical truths and our mathematical beliefs. And this, Field argues, is not the kind of thing that can just be a coincidence. It's too striking to be a coincidence. It's the kind of fact that calls for explanation. And I see the connection to my book. He gives an anal analogy that I think is helpful. Imagine that someone came to us and started telling us all these things about some remote village in Nepal. And at the same time, imagine that he tells us, I was never in this village in Nepal. I don't have anything to do with anyone who was ever there. What would you think of this person? Obviously, you would think one of two things. Either he's just making all this up and it's all lies, or he is in contact somehow with this village. Maybe he was there and he was lying about that. Maybe he spoke with someone who was there, something like that. Here's what you would not accept. You would not accept the, the possibility that he's making all this up or guessing and guessing correctly. That would be too far-fetched for you to, to accept. And now Field thinks the same thing applies to mathematics. So mathematicians make all these claims about mathematics, and it's not like they can visit Mathland and look at all the math mathematical truths. So what should we make of it? Field thinks, just like we should think about the N Nepal guy, that he's making all this up, we should think of mathematicians that in an important sense, they're making up mathematics. That's why his view is called mathematical fictionalism. He thinks that math is similar in important ways to fiction, which we all agree we make up. So basically he's saying since um, we can't observe mathematical facts, um, they, we, we have no reason to think that uh, we get them right, that, we, that our mathematical beliefs are true. So he actually thinks that they're true, but they're true only if you reconceive of what math is and what we're doing in math. If you think of it as something that is made up, that we're not even trying to get these truths out there because maybe there aren't any truths out there, but it's something that is helpful for us maybe in doing science, then we'll actually be correct about what we're saying. I mean, think of people who start telling you all kinds of facts about unicorns and suppose that our presumption is that there are no unicorns. Would you think they're telling things that are false? No, they're telling things that are true. They're true within the fiction that they're trying to make up. They're not trying to say something about the world. They're trying to say something about their fiction and within their fiction, it's, it's fine. So that's what Hartree Field thinks about mathematics, at least something similar enough to call it fictionalism. I see. Okay. And so, so now you see the connection to my book, because his argument is based on this idea that there's a fact that calls for explanation, our mathematical knowledge. And philosophers have realized that the same argument applies to ethics, that applies to religion, 
it applies to modality, it applies to some other domains where the beliefs are not based on observations. So the idea is that just as Field thinks that in math, there's a sense in which our beliefs are true, but it's not the sense in which uh, they somehow track independent facts in the world, then other people might say a similar thing about morality. Maybe there are true moral claims, but not in the sense that they track some kind of independent moral facts in the world. Exactly. And that's exactly the argument that uh, Sharon Street and some others make about, about ethics. They think due to argument of in-field style that mathematical beliefs, sorry, moral beliefs right. are the kind of thing that the kind of thing that if they're true, it would call for explanation why they are true. Um, Street concludes that we should think of morality as something that in some significant sense we make up. And so do you think of these arguments as skeptical arguments? Because they do allow that we make true claims in math or in, or in morality, uh, but, you still, but they're still skeptical in a sense, right? That's like all up for debate. Um, are they skeptical or not? So the people who make these arguments like Hartree Field and Sharon Street, they don't think they're arguing. They, their conclusion is not that we should be skeptical about ethics or about math. Rather, they think... It's more plausible, rather than saying, okay, this is all nonsense or all falsehoods, um, our math and our ethics, they think we should reconceptualize or change our view about what mathematics is about and what ethics is about, so that it actually turns out that we're not saying things that are false. Um, and they think that works well. Other people suspect, no, if, you're, if you think ethics, as soon as you think that ethics and mathematics are things that we make up, you're, you've gone far away from what, we've, what we normally think of when we think about mathematics and ethics. And that's like a, right. a big debate. Right. But the, all these arguments, Fields and, and, and uh, Sharon Street's arguments, are based on this notion of certain things calling for explanation. Right. Uh, well, in Street's case, she, in different articles of hers, she made different versions of her argument. And one of, her, one of the versions of the argument is Fields' version based on this idea that some facts call for explanation. Okay, so, so, so now, just to kind of uh, understand, so in your book, you focus on that notion, partly because it's important for all these different arguments in different fields. Exactly, yeah. So I was, I was lucky to learn, to discover, while I was working on my PhD and we're working on these parallels between religion and morality, that there's this whole family of arguments that is based on this idea that there are facts that call for explanation, but then no one really has sat down to figure out what it means for a fact to call for explanation, what might distinguish between the facts that call for explanation and those that don't call for explanation. And I was lucky to have David Enoch as my supervisor and Josh Schechter as someone who I met and ta been talking to for years about, about these issues. I learned from them that this is an issue that's important on the one hand, but no one has done the work on the other. So I said, hey, here's something that I can contribute to philosophy. You said that your book is trying to figure out what's the difference between facts that call for explanation and facts that don't. So I'd like to ask you, what are the kinds of examples uh, that people have in mind? What, what are examples of facts that call for explanation? So people who think that there are facts that call for explanation usually motivate this thought using examples. So the kinds of examples they like giving are say, coin examples. I toss a coin many, many, many times. 
and it lands in some random looking sequence, heads, tails, heads, 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 tails, tails, heads, and I just made that up just now. Um, that wouldn't intuitively call for explanation. But if I took a, to a coin and, and tossed it many, many times and it lands heads on every single toss, that would call for explanation. Now, it's not only if it landed heads on every toss, if it landed heads, tails, heads, tails, heads, tails, heads, tails, alternating on each toss, that would also call for explanation. Right. So people start from examples like this. By the way, it's not just, I mean, these are imaginary examples. I don't know if you ever saw a coin landing uh, heads in every toss. But there are also, you can think of things that you encounter every day that intuitively call for explanation. When my son plays with soap bubbles, and I'm taking out an example from Roger White. When he plays with soap bubbles, they all come out spherical. I never saw him even once making, trying to make a bubble with, with soap, and it came out square or diamond-shaped or... Right. Pyramid. Um, it's always spherical. You might think, why is it always spherical? That would call for explanation. Can't just be a coincidence. Right. So uh, do you think um, that these facts, in fact, call for explanation? Do you think that that sounds pretty plausible, that there's some things, you know, scientists look at the world, um, some things they want to explain, some things they, they say, you know, that's just the way things are. So it sounds pretty plausible to say that some things call for explanations and some things don't. Don't you agree? So you're asking me what my view is? Well, if I give away my secrets, you won't buy my book. <laughs> Joking. I actually think that as intuitive as this idea sounds, we should toss it out the window, at least when we're trying to reason carefully. This goes against all those philosophers that I mentioned before who use calling for explanation in their arguments. I think it's helpful to notice that when we say that a fact calls for explanation, we're talking figuratively. Facts, of course, don't literally call for anything. They can't talk. We're using this image of a fact calling to us, explain me. Now you might ask, so what if it's figurative? A lot of what we say is figurative. What I argue is that this figure of a fact calling for explanation doesn't have a set meaning. It can mean many different things. Sometimes it means that we should expect some particular kind of explanation. Sometimes it means that we are interested in finding an explanation. Also, different facts call for explanation for different reasons. It's not like there's any property that things have, the calling for explanation property. So saying that a fact calls for explanation doesn't provide information about why a fact calls for explanation and what kind of explanation it calls for. It's a loose way of talking. And if we're interested in serious questions like whether a God exists or morality is objective, it's better not to use loose talk. So you're not, so you're not really saying that we should that facts don't call for explanation. You're just saying that um, um, that using this notion is not is not helpful in in our inquiries. I'm saying not only that it's not helpful, but I'm saying that it has led people astray. It has led people to confusion. An example that I give to illustrate this, and I use this at the beginning of my book, is something I looked into with my colleague Orly Schenker, who's a uh, philosopher of physics. And what we learned is that there are two philosophers of physics that have been arguing for years about whether a hypothesis called the past hypothesis is something that calls for explanation. And they've been arguing it since the f one of them wrote a book in, in the late 90s. When we looked at their at their debate, at the different papers that each one of them wrote, we realized that they're actually talking past each other. When one says that the fact calls for explanation, he means one thing that actually the other author doesn't dispute. When the other author says it doesn't call for explanation, he's saying something that, again, the, the first author doesn't dispute. 
So that illustrates how, how you can get confused if you're using this term, this figure of speech, this figurative way of talking, of co- facts calling for explanation, and you're not careful to specify exactly what you mean and why you mean that. So this is a good example of confusion. Can you give an example of discussions in philosophy where people speak more carefully about this notion and don't fall into confusion in this way? Yeah, so if we go back to the fine-tuning arguments that we discussed in the beginning of our conversation, I think a better approach to fine-tuning arguments is, for example, something that happens in some recent work that applies probability theory. So Yoav Isaacs and John Hawthorne have been working on probabilistic arguments for the existence of God. It gets quite complicated and technical, but I think it's a more precise approach to take. And of course, I don't agree. I disagree with their arguments, but I think it's the way to go about this discussion. Mm-hmm. My main point is to avoid the following confusion. We should believe of a watch that we find that it was intentionally designed, but not because it just calls for explanation. Rather, based on a lot of things that we know about people and our world, there is a very probable explanation that some human made it. But none of this applies to the universe. We have much less to build on when trying to figure out how the universe came into being. The same goes for the person making claims about the village in Nepal. We know exactly why we should think they are either lying or have some connection to someone who was in the village. But it's not clear that the same holds for our beliefs about mathematics. Once we realize that we don't just see some things calling for explanation, but rather we have more concrete reasons to expect specific kinds of explanations, the analogies break down. And it's more difficult to make the argument. So you, in a way, you really are reviving Hume's objection to the argument from design. Essentially, you're saying that the best argument you know for the existence of God is flawed. Right. That's one thing I say, but I think I say a lot more. Because this idea of facts calling for explanation is much more prevalent than just arguments for the existence of God. It appears all over the place, as we just saw. What I'm saying is that whenever we come across this way of thinking, this idea that certain facts call for explanation, we should go beyond that. We should ask, what exactly do we mean by the fact calling for explanation? What ex- explanation exactly should we expect and why? You have been listening to Research Bites, the podcast of the Martin Buber Society of Fellows, in the humanities and social sciences. In this podcast, we hope to offer a taste or a bite of the research taking place in our society and the kinds of conversations taking place in its offices, hallways and, indeed, the kitchen. Additional episodes discuss matters such as the collaboration between the Catholic Church and the Stasi in East Germany and the visual aspects of the Quran. Our thanks to Omri Ben-Dor, our series producer, recorder and editor. The Buber Society is a German-Israeli collaboration housed at the Hebrew University and founded by the German Federal Ministry for Education and Research. For more information about the Martin Buber Society of Fellows, about this episode and about additional episodes, please visit our website. Buberfellows.huji.ac.il That is B-U-B-E-R-F-E-L-L-O-W-S dot H-U-J-I dot A-C dot I-L Thank you.